In the quest for internal peace, we often seek external sources. We take another vacation, we read another self-help book, we attend another conference or seminar, or we fixate on yet another guru or thought leader of the moment. We've heard it before, the answers all lie inside you. M. Scott Peck said, you have to forge an identity before you can surrender one. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Today we're going to focus on the foundational relationship. This is the relationship that determines how we engage with every other relationship in our lives. And no, it's not your relationship with your mother or your father or your spouse or even God if you believe in God and adhere to the practices of any religion. This relationship directly impacts your mental health. The healthier this relationship is, the more we find enjoyment in our lives and can tolerate pain and struggles with greater creativity and resilience. This relationship affects our mood and our perspective. This relationship is your relationship with yourself. Your relationship with yourself is the sum total of your actions toward yourself and your perspective on yourself, which drives your feelings about yourself. We don't think about a relationship with ourselves this way, do we? It's a phrase that doesn't mean too much. I think it's vague, isn't it? Think of someone you really love. Let's put this into more concrete terms in our mind. Think of someone you really love and think about your feelings about that person, how you treat them, what you would do for them, what you want for them. Think about how well you know them and think about how much you enjoy them. Now, ask yourself, how's your relationship with yourself? Let's use the same criteria. What are your feelings about yourself? How do you treat you? (laughs) What would you do for you? What do you want for you? How do you take care of you? How well do you know you? How much do you enjoy you? Today, we're going to unpack some essential building blocks of our relationship with ourself. This is not something that can be understood or explained easily because human beings are deep wells. We're mysterious, mysterious beings. There's always new layers. There's always something to explore. But let's do our best today. And I'm going to do my best today to break it down a little bit. Okay, I don't want to overly simplify it and not give it the sacred attention that it deserves, but we need something to work with. So I'm going to try and break it down a little bit. And let's start by asking ourselves, how is my relationship with me? Let's look at six facets of our relationship with ourselves. Self-knowledge, self-compassion, self-safety, self-confidence, self-awareness, and self-love. So we're going to take a look at each one of these, how they develop, what halts their development, and why it's important. So hopefully after today's podcast, you'll have a fleshed out understanding a little bit more of how you relate with yourself. And again, this relationship forms the foundation for every relationship you will build. And maybe you're thinking, Vanessa, don't you think this is selfish? I'm going to spend 45 minutes on my drive during my commute, during my workout, to focus on myself. Isn't this just so selfish? Friends, cultivating and nurturing a healthy relationship with yourself is not selfish in the negative connotation of that word. When we use selfish negatively, we mean operating out of a kind of self-interest that has little to no regard for other people's needs or the repercussions of our choices on others. It's just solely seeing the self. But loving ourselves isn't selfish. Learning ourselves is not selfish. 
Knowing who we are and taking the time to do that is not selfish. It's essential. Examining and growing in our relationship with ourself is about forming an authentic, healthy relationship internally so that we can bring that to our relationships. Healthy relationships start with healthy self-love. They start with a healthy relationship with the self. So that old saying is true. You cannot love anyone until you love yourself. All right, let's dive in. Self-knowledge. This is simply the knowledge we have of ourselves as people, as individuals. It grows throughout the lifespan as we experience more, as we learn more about the world and how we interact with it. So personality, okay, that's what gives us energy, what drains us, what drives us. Personality also determines to a certain extent what our style of communication is, what our style of confrontation is. It determines the elements that seem to be inherent, meaning we're born with them or the elements that seem to be developed as a means of survival or thriving in whatever our situation was growing up. And sometimes this is hard to tease out. Okay, is this a natural component of my personality, or did I develop this in my environment? It's a good question to ask. Sometimes we're going to get answers. Sometimes we won't. But some elements of personality seem to be fixed, and some seem to be more fluid. Self-knowledge involves patterns and routines. These are the ways we habitually go about getting our needs met. These are the needs we can tolerate going unmet and the needs we cannot go without, okay? Self-knowledge involves the knowledge of preferences. That could include leisure activities, hobbies, what brings us life, what brings us joy, what we don't like, what turns us off. Self-knowledge is our opinions. These are personal reflections. These are thoughts we form based on very subjective experience. Self-knowledge is personal history, What happened in your life? How did it affect you? What are the chapters of your life? What were the big moments? How did they form you? How did they shape you? Self-knowledge is emotional. It's knowing our emotions, what we feel, being able to identify our feelings, being able to name our feelings. Okay, so this is just sort of encompassing self-knowledge. It's the knowledge of us, who we are. And we might struggle with this facet of our relationship with ourselves if... We were taught to have relationship and be in relationships in which our individuality was not valued. So said another way, our distinctness, our uniqueness, personal experience, individual perspective, it was not sought after or it wasn't honored. Now, when we are small, when we're children, every entity, except for other children, every entity is larger than us. And when those entities don't value our individual voice in childhood or even in adulthood, we might struggle with an ongoing knowledge of ourselves. So I'm going to repeat this because it's important. Whatever entity we're in relationship with, this can be family, a marriage, a company, a church, even a government. Any entity with which we are in relationship, if they do not value individuality, personality, subjective experience, self-definition, autonomy, Self-knowledge is going to take a backseat. Why? Because it's simply not important. The knowledge of the group, the leader, the figurehead, the godhead, all of those larger entities are going to silence the knowledge of the self. Now, what that looks like in families could be parents being more concerned with obedience or overall behavior than knowing the child, than really understanding the behavior You know, maybe we felt like our parents were proud of us. I'm sure we felt like our, you know, most of us felt like our parents loved us. But some of us have said this, and I've heard this so often in therapy. My parents loved me, but they didn't know me. Think about that. They were proud of me. They didn't know me. 
My husband loves me. I know he loves me, but he doesn't know me. Oh, I'm sure my wife appreciates who I am, but she doesn't know my heart. She doesn't know my dreams. She doesn't know my failures. Oh, I've got a lot of friends. Well, do any of them really know you? No, not really. See how that's missing? The knowledge of the entity, the entity itself, is more important than the individuals who comprise it. Now, sometimes this is perfectly appropriate. In team sports, this is a team attitude, right? This is a more collective attitude. But in order to have healthy relationship, we need a balance between the individual and the collective. And maybe we still feel this way in our relationships, that we've got lots of relationships, but no one really knows us. This can create a lack of self-knowledge within, because if no one's wanting to know us, if no one wanted to know us growing up or in our lives, our marriages, we stop wanting to know us. You know, some family systems don't emphasize the knowledge of one another. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from asking questions and listening to answers. It comes from allowing differences. We have to invest the time in allowing every part of a family system, every child, from oldest to youngest. Everyone needs to be able to express themselves and find the words to describe inner experience. And it's hard. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes an ongoing sense of worth for the individual. And we have to try really hard and pay attention to know other people. Siblings have to be taught, hey, your sister's talking right now. Listen to what she's saying. Your brother's speaking. Don't interrupt him. Let's listen. And when the conversation in the family stays in the realm of what family members are doing and not why they're doing it, that layer of self-knowledge could be lost. Okay? Now, this might sound like if we wanted to really get to a deeper layer, it could sound like, hey, Jenny, what did you do today with Patrice? Okay, I'm just making up names. Well, we drew pictures and we colored them. Well, what did you draw? Tigers. Oh, yeah? What made you choose tigers? Boom. There it is. One layer down. One layer past what we're doing is the big connection we have to make when we acquire self-knowledge. I'm doing this because it's connected to a part of myself. Now, even if the child doesn't know, because sometimes they don't, they're young, they don't have language for it, they're not really skilled in self-reflection yet because they're little, they may just shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know. (laughs) But the question is still worth asking. The seed of self-discovery is still worth planting, even in our adult relationships. Wow, you got a new job. Tell me about it. Oh, you know, it just pays more. It's better. Well, what made you choose this company? I don't know. I mean, sometimes people get impatient with us. Why are you asking me so many questions? You can tell this is someone who doesn't spend a lot of time with self-knowledge and self-reflection. This is just someone who's sort of doing. They're living, but they're not knowing themselves. Now, here's a secret from a therapist, okay? Every single thing you do is connected to a deeper part of you. Every single thing. Everything. This is what makes therapy so interesting and so rich. And frankly, it's what makes people so interesting and so rich. I mean everything from career choices to romantic attraction to daily routines to hobbies to your favorite color. Every single thing you do and choose is connected to a deeper part. I have worked with clients for years before they ever learn through steady work and therapy how and why they chose huge parts of their lives, their career, their spouse, whether or not to have kids, their hobbies, the house they bought, where they live. It all comes from subconscious knowledge, and eventually it comes to the surface if you give it time and space, and patience is key. Just this morning, I had a conversation where I was like, you know, I know why I'm afraid of this one thing in my life, 
and it's because of this. And I've never confronted it before because I haven't had to. But today the knowledge came to the surface and I thought, okay, I think I can grapple with this if I understand why I'm so afraid of it. So we're always finding reasons if we're open to self-knowledge. When I was in New York, some of you know this, I've had two careers. My first career in life was I was an actress in New York. I went to the Tisch School of the Arts and I had a 10-year career in the arts and it was so much fun and I traveled the world and it was great fun. And I remember sitting in my therapist's office when I was in my early 20s and I remember putting my finger on why I act. And I've known many actors. I still have many friends who are in the arts. And I so respect people who do this for the pure art of it. But I wasn't. And I remember sitting in her therapy office that day. And I looked at her and I said, Mary, I know why I act. And she said, why, Vanessa? And I said, because when I'm up there, you have to listen to me. You paid to listen to me. Now, I grew up in a family where I was the youngest child. And in my family, the youngest child didn't get a lot of respect. I wasn't heard. My opinion wasn't valued. My thoughts were not seen as anything worth listening to. So I spent a lot of energy as a kid trying to get attention in a number of ways, positive attention, negative attention. I just spent a lot of energy trying to get attention because I was doted on, but I wasn't taken seriously. I was loved, but I wasn't heard. Okay, so that's a lot of my story. And yeah, my knowledge of myself faltered. I mean, I just kept trying to be what everybody else wanted me to be. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. But I remember sitting in this therapist's office and I was like, I know why I act. It's because when I'm up there, everyone's listening to me. I'm the star of the show. Even if I'm not the star, if I have a bit part, at least for that moment, I have your attention. And I remember realizing what that was doing for my ego. And I knew in that moment, I can't act anymore. I can't do this. I I don't have the integrity to do it. I know people who do this because it is their way of expressing their truth, their lives, their souls in the world. It's not for me. It's an ego pursuit. And actually, that was the end of my acting career. So sidebar, beware of therapy. (laughs) Sometimes the truth comes out and you don't want to see it, but you got to deal with it. So back to it. A healthy connection, a healthy relationship with ourselves where self-knowledge is concerned means that we can connect what we're doing with the deeper layers of us. Big decisions we make with deeper awareness, we can get to those layers. Now, like the story I just told you, there's anxiety here. There's nervousness. Okay, what if I find some truth in there that I don't want? I don't want to face it. What if we run into impatience? And that's common. And I will often ask my clients, you know, so you chose such and such. Why is that important to you? I don't know. It just is. And I know in that moment, okay, just keep the space safe. Keep the dialogue going because it could be months or years before they see why. What made you choose the career you're in? Oh, I don't know. I just picked a major. Nope. There's a lot more. Patience here is key. Now, I'm going to say a couple words about religion because it's important. And I know some of you listening are believers in God. Uh, You seek God. You may be practitioners of a particular faith. Maybe you identify as Jewish or Muslim or Christian. For those of you who are agnostic or atheistic, um, members of another faith, just bear with me here. okay? because this is so important. When we are forming a relationship with a higher power, God, the way the church or structured religion has emphasized the dynamics of that relationship are a constant and complete focus on the knowledge of God and very rarely, if ever, at least from what I've heard, and I spent a lot of years sitting in a pew, very rarely, if ever, the knowledge of the self. Now, this is problematic for a couple of reasons. Without a knowledge of ourselves, my friends, who exactly are we bringing to God? Really? And I know what the argument is because I used to make it. Well, God knows us implicitly and completely. 
However, we will have no conscious experience of a connection with God without knowing who it is, meaning us, that is coming to God in prayer or in worship or in communion. Ask yourself, very simply, ask yourself if your prayer life would be enhanced or weakened if you knew yourself better. If you could articulate your truth, your your thoughts, your feelings, your wants, your desires, your fears, your hopes, what this was connected to in your life, how your early childhood informed your adulthood, all those parts of you, do you think your prayer life would be enhanced or diminished if you knew yourself better? Ask yourself if the intimacy you experience with God would be enhanced or diminished if you brought yourself to God with increasing self-knowledge. I know these are rhetorical questions, but everywhere I've seen, everywhere I go, with very few exceptions, the knowledge of God is so much more valued and emphasized over the knowledge of the self. And what this creates is an avoidance of the self in favor of knowing God. That's called a spiritual bypass because we don't have to face ourselves, our fears, our failures, our feelings, our complexity, because we know God. This is not humble and it's not selfless. It's bad theology and it stumps intimacy. At the end of the day, we suffer because our relationship with God isn't what it could be. In healthy spirituality, the knowledge of the self is integrated into the relationship with the divine. Just like every other relationship, the more we know ourselves, the more intimate the relationship can and will become. Okay, so some thoughts there about religion and God. Hopefully they are helpful. You know, if the entity is the community that we're in, and it could be a subculture, it could be a subset, or it could be our government. For some of us listening, we live in systems of government or political party or affiliations of some sort or another where the collective message is protected and promoted and individuality, when in conflict with the larger entity, is at best shamed and at worst grounds for excommunication from the group. This is very dangerous. The knowledge of the self will suffer. Why? Because the need to belong will trump the need to be authentic. The knowledge of the self is paramount if we want real relationship and satisfying relationships. The more we know ourselves, the greater our capacity for intimacy. Why? Because we're able to intentionally and accurately share who we are with others. This gives them a lot of information about us with which to relate. It can open up their hearts for compassion or interest or curiosity. We get to bring ourselves to other people. And this gives us a sense of congruence and integrity within our relationships because we know who we are and can therefore be true to who we are in relationship and the relationships are authentic. Okay, number two, self-compassion. Now, what is compassion? The word compassion literally means to feel with. And it's generally referred to as a state of being genuinely concerned with the suffering of another. And it may even mean the will to offer what we have out of our own resources to alleviate the suffering or the pain of someone else, right? So what is self-compassion? Well, self-compassion means that we have a genuine caring concern for our own pain. And we're motivated to relieve our own suffering without harsh judgment, without harsh judgment. We may struggle with self-compassion if we didn't or don't receive it. Bottom line, plain and simple. 
If our pain was ignored or if it is ignored, if it's overlooked, if it's minimized, if it's misunderstood, if it's neglected, or if we're blamed for the pain we feel, we will likely struggle with giving ourselves compassion. Now, the irony here is that we may actually wind up being very compassionate to other people. And that's because we often love others with what we want to receive ourselves, but we will struggle to give it to ourselves. Two types of compassion, conditional compassion and unconditional compassion. Conditional compassion is when compassion is only offered if the giver can justify the pain. If they cannot, they will say and believe things like, well, you had it coming to you. You brought this on yourself. That's conditional compassion is I only offer it if I understand the pain or if I can validate the reason for the pain. And my friends, I have been guilty of this. I got into a conflict not too many years ago with someone who I love very much because someone in their life was suffering, and I thought those very words. I thought, she brought it on herself. She should not have gotten involved in that conflict. And, you know, this person was so hurt by me. Why couldn't you have just offered compassion? And when I reflected on it, I realized, because I didn't, I didn't validate the reason. And that was on me. And I had to own it. And I came back and I said, you know, I am so sorry. Unconditional compassion is the way. And I failed you here. And I was grateful that that I was forgiven for that. Unconditional compassion means, look, you're suffering and I care. The cause is not important right now. Your pain is. So unconditional self-compassion sounds like this. You know, I may have made a mess here, but I'm trying to meet my own needs. And maybe I did it in a poor way, but these are the needs I was trying to meet. I can see how I was at least trying. I'm going to go easy on myself as I tease this apart. My heart's involved and my heart is tender and deserves kindness. That's self-compassion. If we received little to no compassion growing up, we will struggle greatly with having compassion for ourselves If we received conditional compassion growing up, we will also struggle greatly with giving it to ourselves. Self-compassion asks why. Not what did I do and was it good or bad, but why did I do it? What need was I trying to meet? Self-compassion acknowledges that there's a process to life. It's not just a series of did I do the right thing or the wrong thing. That's ridiculous. That's not life. Life is far more complex. So self-compassion acknowledges the process that life is. Look, I'm not going to do everything right the first time. Even the second time, I'm learning. That's what a voice that's self-compassionate sounds like. Self-compassion resists contempt or judgment of ourselves. Self-understanding is valued far more highly than self-punishment. And by the way, punishment doesn't work. It does not shape behavior as well as compassion and grace. And there are tons of documented studies on this. When we are self-compassionate, we are our own advocate. We are the one in the courtroom standing up saying, look, don't judge this person. This is what they were trying to do. And self-compassion, and I want to make sure I say this, it's not about excusing behavior. It's not. Some behavior is healthy and some behavior is not. And we can generally identify if behavior is healthy or not if it causes harm. If it causes harm to the self or another, it's not typically healthy behavior. If it upholds dignity, life, virtue, if it honors the self, if it honors others, if it's kind, that is generally healthier behavior. So we're not talking about excusing ourselves. We're talking about understanding ourselves with an acceptance of what human nature is. 
when my clients are excessively hard on themselves, and I have too, I have been excessively hard on myself, when we're like that, we have unrealistic ideas about humanity. Humans are very sensitive beings. They're sensitive, they're needy, they're emotional, they're complex. And when we lack self-compassion, we are forgetting that we are sensitive, needy, emotional, and complex. We're expecting ourselves to be less than that. And a lack of compassion demands outcomes without taking into account that there's a process to them. There are obstacles. And there is the treasure of learning as we go. Self-compassion enables us to do the work, to look at ourselves honestly, safely, and with wisdom. A lack of self-compassion gets confused for toughness or grit. But it's not. It's a lack of humanity. Look, our lives have unfolded as they have, and our influences have been what they've been, period. We've become who we are for reasons that make sense, that are true, that are real. And we would do much better in terms of growing in our mental and emotional health and, frankly, growing in our humanity. We would do so much better to focus on the why behind who we are and how we think rather than the what of what we do. Focusing on the what is usually about shame. Well, I should be this and I should be that and I should be doing this and I should be doing that. Focusing on the why is the journey of being yourself. Huh, I'm this. And how did I get to be this? What is my story here? Okay, that's self-compassion. Self-safety. Safety is the state of being when we are in the absence of threat. There's no threat of harm. That is the essence of being safe. Safety isn't just physical. There's emotional safety, and that's the freedom to feel and express without judgment or argument. There's intellectual safety. That's the peace and the freedom to think and express one's thoughts without fear of judgment or alienation or even attack. There's sexual safety, which is the freedom and peace to experience oneself intimately, to know one's body sexually and curiously without shame. So let's talk about self-safety. Self-safety is being a safe person for ourselves, for all the parts of us. And self-safety may have been slowed or stopped in our development when we were not safe in any of the above areas. So we may not know how to be safe for ourselves. We may have received judgment instead of curiosity. And in that way, we were not safe. So self-safety looks like this. Emotionally, we are able to have our feelings without the fear that what we are feeling is wrong or weak. So we don't invalidate ourselves. And that sounds like this. Well, I've got no right to be feeling what I'm feeling. That's invalidation. We don't suppress our feelings. And that means going through our days, our weeks, the months of our lives, and yes, even our years. I have spent time with clients who have never asked themselves for years, what am I feeling? Okay, that's suppression. We don't dismiss our feelings. And what does dismissal sounds like? It sounds like, you know what, I'm fine. I'll get over it. We don't shame ourselves for having feelings. And that sounds like, oh, if I weren't such a wimp, I wouldn't be feeling this way. Or if I was a good person, I wouldn't be feeling this way. If I were a better person, I wouldn't be feeling this way. That's all shaming. Okay? So when we're emotionally safe, we're accepting our feelings. We're not judging them. We're not shaming them. We're learning to notice them and express them. Being self-safe physically Obviously, it means we're not reckless, right? We keep and maintain our bodies safe from physical harm. But what does that actually mean? I'm going to get into a couple areas here. 
One way that we can be safe for ourselves physically is not abusing drugs or alcohol. Now, let's be honest, okay? The systems of the body are strong, but they're also fragile. And our bodies can take a beating to a certain point. The toll of drugs and alcohol, and yes, I am including pot. I am. And send me an email if you want more information on why. The toll on the body is significant. So being safe for ourselves physically means we treat our bodies with respect for, one, how they're meant to function. These are amazing organisms. These are incredible mechanisms that we're living in here. And two, we have respect for our limits. Imagine someone pouring alcohol down another person's throat until they vomited, until they got sick. This would be abusive, right? But we do this to ourselves when we drink or drug ourselves to the point of sickness. So being self-safe, having self-safety means we're listening to our bodies, we're not abusing them with drugs or alcohol. It means we get enough sleep. We don't expect our bodies to function without adequate rest. That's just not fair. And those of you, you know, I look at my demographics often enough, and I know that the bulk of you listening out there are between, I'd say, 35 and 50. But there are some of you listening in your 20s. And when you're in your 20s, hear me now, you can beat your body up. You can stay up late. You can get up early and you will march on. If you are in your 30s, you know as well as I do that gets harder. And by the time we're in our 40s and upwards, we're basically in bed by 8 and still tired in the morning. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Ah, oh, aging is fun. Okay, but that's the point. You have to get enough sleep. Okay, so if you're safe for yourself, you're not giving yourself this unrealistic expectation that you can function on all, you know, eight cylinders without sleep. It means we eat foods that nourish us. And if we don't, if our diets are mostly fast foods or processed foods or fried foods, then we don't have to wonder why we feel sluggish and lack energy. We don't shame ourselves. Oh, what's wrong with me? I'm so tired all the time. I just don't like the way I look or feel. But no, no, no. If we are eating foods that nourish us, we know what the repercussions are. And if we're not, we're going to be dealing with those repercussions. But if we're safe for ourselves physically, if our physical system is safe in the hands of our minds, we're giving ourselves foods that do not cause harm. They nourish, they build up, and they support every system in the body. What does spiritual self-safety mean? Hmm. It means we allow ourselves to believe. Yes, I just said that. It means you allow yourself to believe. We all have a sense within us of our depth. Even if it's faint, it's there. We have a sense of our connection to one another. It could be to nature, to a larger story. If we believe in God, we might conceptualize of this or express this as a connection to the source, the creator. We call that God. If we are being safe for ourselves spiritually, when we are moved, whether it's to tears, to laughter, to wonder, to awe, to depth, to creativity, we allow it. We don't silence or shush ourselves and act like we're simpletons. No, we allow wonder. We allow mystery. We allow ourselves to feel small in the presence of the bigness of things. And we're not confined to the rational thinking mind, which, by the way, can we go here? It's so limiting. I am continuously. And maybe it's because I've just always been this way. Like from a kid to adulthood, I've always been more of a spiritually attuned person. But I'm just always amazed when I hear people say, well, if I can't rationally understand it, then I don't believe it. I mean, let's talk about this for a second. We are limiting ourselves to what we can intellectually understand. That's it. 
We are literally living in a world that is bound by the limits of our own intellect. The gray matter between your ears is determining your entire reality. Imagine how small that person's world is. Not only that, you'd have to have an enormous ego to think that you're capable of intellectually grasping everything that is. And if you can't intellectually understand it, well, then it must not be true or have any validity at all. This is, for me, a bit insane. I only believe what I can understand. Wow. That is a very small world. It's also not spiritually safe. I mean, this is like a three-year-old saying that quantum physics does not exist because she can't grasp it. Hello? (laughs) It's crazy. It's like a 15-year-old saying that there's no such thing as economics because they don't understand it yet. And for some reason, when human beings get into their 20s, upwards of their 20s, especially if they've been to college, they get a degree, they really start to think that their mind is the great grasper of all things. And if they can't understand it, then it must not be real. What a small world. What a small, limited experience of life. Because we're effectively saying that the universe and everything in it is the size of what? My brain. (laughs) My goodness. When we are spiritually safe for ourselves, we believe. And we allow ourselves to not know. And this is very interesting. This leads to another element of self-safety where spirituality is concerned. If we are safe for ourselves and within ourselves spiritually, we will allow doubt. We don't require that every question we have has to have concrete, neat answers. We will allow skepticism. We will wrestle. We will learn. We will evolve. We will grow because we realize that that's all part of being spiritually safe. How many people leave the faith? How many people leave church? How many people leave any belief in God whatsoever? Because when they came to doubts or they came to skepticism, there was nobody there to say this is normal. Well, they toss it all out because now there's no rationally thinking people in the room because there's no room for doubts and skepticism. There should be room for doubts and skepticism. That's part of spirituality. So when we're safe for ourselves, we allow that within ourselves. When we're spiritually safe for ourselves, the path before us is mysterious. It's also glorious. It's confusing at times. It's enlightening beyond belief at times. Sometimes it's dark. Sometimes it's brilliant, but no matter what, it's wide open. So we allow ourselves to be on the journey. We're not focused solely on what we're doing, which is so often the failure of religion. Do this, do that. But we're allowing ourselves to ask, why are we doing it? We're looking at our motives. We're looking at faith. Do I really believe this or am I just doing it? Are our actions connected to beliefs or are they connected to doctrine? Because if actions are connected to real beliefs about ourselves, about the way the world works, the nature of love, whatever the belief is, we're pretty likely well integrated spiritually. Because what we're doing and what we believe is the same thing. But if our actions are connected to the proper exercise of doctrine, we are probably living in fear. When we're safe spiritually, we can look honestly at this because we realize it's all part of the process of spiritual growth. And this self-safety nurtures a dimension in us that is deep. It's very connective with others on a level that surpasses feelings and thoughts. This level of us ponders questions, big questions. Who am I in the world? What is my purpose? What is my power? And we all deserve to swim in these waters without self-censure. So you ask yourself, am I safe for myself spiritually? All right, self-confidence. 
Confidence just means trust or faith in something. To put your confidence in something or someone means you have trust in it or faith in it. So self-confidence means that trust or faith is in yourself. And it's usually expressed in two areas. Faith or trust in our ability or competency to perform, to do something, or faith or trust in our goodness and inherent self-worth. Okay, now let's break this down a little bit. Confidence is built two ways. Positive input and proving ourselves to ourselves. So let's talk about positive input. We have to believe what is being said when we hear it from other people. If we don't believe the words, they won't land and they won't build self-concept into self-confidence. We also have to trust the person saying the words. Because if we don't trust the person speaking, even if the words are positive, we will not believe them. If the person is insincere, if they've been dishonest, if we know them to be someone who lies, if they're exploiting us through flattery or any reason at all that doesn't feel trustworthy, the words, again, they won't land and they won't have any impact at all or it will be minimal. So we need to believe the words themselves, meaning we need to fathom that what someone else is speaking might somehow be true of us, and we need to have trust in the person who's speaking. Now let's talk about proving ourselves to ourselves. This means having victories. It means rising after defeat. And we can talk big all day long. But unless or until we've done a thing, we won't have true confidence about our ability to do it. We won't. You can talk about something all day long. Until you've done it, you don't know if you can. So self-confidence is compromised or halted in development if we didn't hear positive words about ourselves. If we heard them but didn't trust them, which is also called flattery, or we didn't trust the person saying them, if they treated us in a way that was opposite what they're saying, we will always believe what they did and not what we heard. So that's important. We got to get that. Even if kids hear positive words, oh, you're a great kid, you're a smart kid, but our thoughts are shot down. We will believe how we're treated and not what we're heard. So in order for positive words to have impact, they, number one, need to be true. They need to be honest observations. And number two, they need to come from someone we trust. Okay? The other reason why self-confidence is halted is if we weren't allowed to succeed or fail. So first, if we weren't allowed to succeed, this means we were cut down or dismissed in our victories. Competitive Insecure people cannot bear to watch others succeed. People who cannot celebrate you are competitive and insecure. And we've all felt the jealousy of others. And let's be honest, we've all been jealous. But hopefully we don't allow our envy to steal the thunder from other people, right? When that happens developmentally, kids learn to doubt themselves. Well, maybe I'm not really winning. Maybe I'm not really worth celebrating. Maybe my accomplishments are not all that much. So we have to have been celebrated. We also need to be allowed to fail. Why? Because failure develops resilience. We need to learn lessons without people interfering with consequences. So successes teach confidence. Failures also teach confidence if we learn and are allowed to learn from them. So being self-confident means we're okay when we win and we're okay when we fail. We see the value in both. One is far more pleasant than the other, but both have value. Self-confidence functions like wind in our sails. The more we get, the more powerful we are. So what do we do to develop self-confidence? Well, we need to evaluate our influences and the people speaking into our lives. We need to make sure that the words are true, that they seem trustworthy, and that they're coming from trustworthy people. And secondly, we need to take 
risks. We need to step outside of our comfort zone. We need to take chances. We need to open up to opportunities, however small, to prove ourselves to ourselves. You know, this could be as small as if you're scared to cook, open a cookbook and fix something. Just go to the store, get the ingredients and buy it. That would do more for your self-confidence than you realize because what you're doing neurologically is you're stepping outside of those real familiar neural pathways and getting into an uncomfortable place and proving to yourself that you can handle it. All right, self-awareness. This means being conscious of ourselves in real time. That's all that means. Self-reflection means becoming conscious after the fact. Self-awareness is being conscious of ourselves in the now. So what's the difference between self-knowledge and self-awareness? Well, self-knowledge is sort of a body of knowledge about the self. It's information based on history or observation of the self. Self Self-awareness is self-knowledge happening in real time. Now, self-awareness could be stopped or stalled or slowed in us if we learned that outcomes were more important than processes. Say that again. Self-awareness does not develop if we prize or value outcomes over process. What do I mean? When I uh, was, I guess, my 20s, I was playing cards with a little girl, and I won't say who, but I was playing cards with a little girl, and she was the child of someone who was very dear in my life, and she was cheating. We were playing memory, and she was, like, looking at the cards and then looking up at me to see if I knew that she was cheating. And I said, don't cheat. You know, keep your cards down. Otherwise, you know, we can't play the game if you cheat. And she just continued doing it and continued doing it. And so we finished the game, but I told her parents later, I was like, you know, she was kind of cheating while we were playing. And, you know, I just thought you might want to know. And they were very, very close to me. So they did want to know. And I will never forget it. Her father looked at me and he goes, what's the problem? I said, what? And he said, as long as she wins, what's the problem? And I just shook my head. I know that you are driving or working out or listening or cooking or walking or whatever you're doing. And you just your jaw dropped. Right. Like I just I remember my jaw dropping and I just shook my head and I was like, oh, my gosh, this poor child. <laughs> but that was that was it. It was the outcome is what matters. The process doesn't matter at all. Now, that stripped this little girl of a couple of things. Number one, a lesson in how to compete with others in a healthy way. And healthy competition is great. And she's actually a very competitive. She's now an adult. She's very competitive and she's very successful at competing. But I'll never forget that response. And I thought, this is crazy. But the second thing that she missed out on is the importance of understanding herself. That was a good teachable moment. That's a great parenting moment. Well, sweetie, talk to me about that. What were you feeling? Were you nervous playing with Vanessa? What was was that about? But in that case, the outcome mattered more than the process. Now self-awareness becomes a hindrance. If we value outcome over process, we don't want to be self-aware because it slows us down. Look, positive outcomes are great. That's usually the goal in life. No one sets out to fail. But if we prize that positive outcome and don't value the process by which we got there, I promise you that the governing quality here is shame. We care too much how we look in our own eyes according to the outcome. And we can't see the value that we develop along the way in the process, the character, the perseverance, the determination, the resilience, the creativity. That's what gets us there. Now, when we value process as well as outcome, we're going to be able to handle failures far better because we can see that failing is part of succeeding. It's part of the process. If we value outcomes over process, it creates unrelenting pressure. If we value process as much as outcome, we can enjoy the ride a lot more. So in order to become self-aware, we have to breathe. Take a breath. I'm going to do it too. (laughs) Just in and out. Just a conscious breath. 
And don't think too much about it. Let yourself take a breath. Just like when you do when you sleep. You're breathing deeply. The difference is you're unconscious. But now breathe and be conscious. And take a moment to self-observe. Observe what you notice in yourself without judgment. This is the very essence at the core of meditation. Notice what thoughts come into your mind. Don't worry about them. Just notice them. Notice what you notice. I love that phrase. Notice the feelings that you have. Notice if you're anxious noticing yourself. Just notice it. Notice how you feel about what you see. And don't try to not feel it. Just learn to sense your feelings without judgment, without the need to change them. Allow them. Notice them. You don't have to believe them. But just notice them. Self-awareness brings us into the moment with ourselves in a way that nothing else can and will. Right now, if you are self-aware, you are actually living your life. You're not on autopilot, just going through the motions or doing what's expected of you based on your conditioning, your training, whatever pathways you traveled that told you who to be, how to act, what to think, what to feel. If you're self-aware, you are living in this moment. You're living in real time. This is real life. This is life. Everything else is just unconscious conditioning, living on autopilot. So what does this bring us to? Self-love. This is what it's all about, folks. This is what self-knowledge, self-compassion, self-safety, self-confidence, and self-awareness are all about. It's about developing a relationship with yourself that is healthy and growing, just like we would want all of our relationships to do. We have long friendships, right? I'm sure everybody listening has a friend that's been around for a while. And over time, we know these people better and better. Our memories increase. We love them more because we've known them for so long. Let me ask you, is this true of your relationship with yourself? Do you love yourself more the longer you know yourself? We have friendships that are deep. Friends that just get us, right? They touch the soul of us in a way that no one else can. And the more we talk and share our lives, the deeper we go. We treasure these people more and more. Is this true of our relationship with ourselves? Do we love, value, cherish, and know our hearts as we're growing? And do we know ourselves more? Do we love ourselves more? This is what it's all about. When this relationship is growing, our lives are as well. That quote by M. Scott Peck from The Road Less Traveled, which is one of my favorite books of all time, Mental, Emotional, Spiritual Growth, one of the best books I think of all time. It's in the chapter on spiritual growth. And Peck is talking about the importance of the knowledge of the self before you try to give your life to God or to a religion or to someone else. So he said, you have to forge an identity before you can surrender one. I remember the first time I read those words. I was on a bus. I was living in Europe at the time. I was about 23 or 24 years old, and I was crossing Germany. And I remember reading those words. And at that point in my life, I had been trying so hard to be whatever people wanted me to be. And those words shot through me like a lightning bolt. It was like he was speaking directly to me. Scott Peck, you have to know who you are first, Vanessa. My friends, we have to know who we are first. We have to love ourselves first. We have to be okay with us first. We have to know how to do relationship with us first. Because when people don't give us the love that we need, and no one can completely, no one, we have to be able to hold steady to who we are and not lose ourselves in the process of trying to find love. We have to be able to feel the disappointments of life and relationship and allow them and know that we're okay, both in what we love and what we need, because we love ourselves. So much more to say about this, but let's pause there. I'll be with you again next week. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear, please share this podcast. If you don't know how to do that, just tap on the three dots next to the podcast. Open up your phone. There's three little dots. If you click them with your finger, just tap on them. The option to share this episode will pop up and send it to someone who needs it. We all need self-love. I know I do. And if you feel inspired, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to those of you listening who have. And some of you have written reviews. Thank you for that. That's next level. So thank you. If you want to write a review on Apple Podcasts, just scroll down to the show page and you'll see the review section, you know, the little purple link that says write a review. So there you go. Thank you. Shout out to BR Nashville for this recent review. Quote, there is something every week to chew on and put into practice for daily living, end quote. That is awesome. Thank you, BR Nashville, for that review. That's the point of the podcast. So thank you so much for taking a time to write a review. If you want to request a topic or say hello and let me know how the podcast is affecting your life, just send me an email, thepodcast at vanessalondino.com. Again, that's thepodcast at vanessalondino.com. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Vanessa underscore Londino underscore LPC, which stands for Licensed Professional Counselor. Remember, say it with me. Your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn to love that human being. And this week, I want to put that in first person. My sole work is to discover who I truly am and learn to love that human being. Hopefully this week, this is a little clearer. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino, and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino Podcast.